Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and voices from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spoda Kindle, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and on this episode, we are responding to an increasingly complex and interconnected financial crime landscape by taking a step back and going back to basics. The pillars of an effective AML compliance program haven't changed that much in recent years, but how they're applied and areas of priority have shifted considerably in response to emerging illicit threats, tech trends, and regulatory priorities. So in this Cramcast, we're sitting down with Micah Willebrand, VP of Product with Jumio, for a wide-ranging conversation on just what those building blocks of a successful AML uh, program look like in the midst of this fourth wave of change in compliance programs. I'm excited for this conversation, so without further ado, let's get to it. Micah, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the program and uh, really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really, uh, really pleased uh, to be with you. And yeah, it's going to be a good, good conversation. Excellent. Well, Obviously, a lot's changed recently. Um, Even before the pandemic, there have been new criminal trends, new threats, new pressures on AML programs. And uh, you sit in a pretty unique role where you have visibility into a lot of the trends within AML compliance programs across multiple institutions. Um, So how have you seen AML compliance programs needing to evolve yeah, so I think, you know, as you said, uh, a lot of things have been sort of coming together in the past few years. Um, you know, traditionally with AML compliance, you know, sort of post, post 9-11, you know, we, we saw a, a need around the sanctions impact of just, you know, who is your customer? Are they a risk? Uh, and, 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 you know, we saw a lot of companies, you know, over the next six or seven years, banks really, you know, kind of solved Solved it, but you know they, they took care of that problem. Implemented products and services to to make sure that they were screening their customers on a regular basis, and then really, um, then then the compliance programs really switched more into transaction monitoring. You know, really detecting. All right, you, you know, for the most part, you don't have sanctions of PEP. Now let's monitor their their uh, financial transactions. So, you know, you saw a lot of that occurring and then you know as the evolution occurred you know people started to see um the financial criminals started to see that you know some of their patterns of money transfers and patterns of account creations were, were being flagged so uh they got a lot more sophisticated on it and then we sort of entered the third wave which was all right let's now go back to putting more of a focus on kyc and so now you're sort of talking post 2016 and you know really identifying um you know, ultimate beneficial owners and, and, and that next stage of KYC. You know, it's so not just pets and sanctions, but also who are, is the person sitting in front of you really that individual? Um, all the information they give you is accurate um, and, and really putting a process on there. So, you know, you can kind of see these waves, you know, sort of are seven or eight years. Sanctions and pet wave was about seven or eight years. Transaction monitoring is about seven or eight. Um, and this KYC wave, uh, you know, we're sort of halfway through that. Uh, but I, you know, obviously the really super huge thing was, you know, companies were, were making a lot of headway, uh, in the late, you know, two, 2010s, um, you know, to start to do that, you know, what do you do with ultimate beneficial owners? How do you get down to 25% ownership stakes and, and, and all the other due diligence that, that occurred with it? But then obviously the pandemic, you know, you, you effectively put your face, tra- you know, manual face to face traffic down to zero and everything went online. 
Uh, so now, you, you know, where, where most organizations kind of figured they had another three, four, five years to, to implement programs and especially large enterprises that, you know, they, they work in that long time frame. All of a sudden you had, you know, this, this requirement to, to, to do it immediately. And so over the past 18 months, we've just seen an incredible ramp. Um, around how do you monitor, how do you onboard your customers? How do you know that they are who they say they are? Fraudsters have gotten extremely good at uh, creating false accounts um, and traditional ways of identifying customers. Are you know that that element is starting to be cracked? Uh, you know most identity verification systems are based on verifying the customer's details against a third-party database, like a government-issued ID database or uh, a credit bureau database or public records or, or something like that. Uh, but, you know, we've you know, seen you know, loads of breaches. Uh, if you're an American citizen, I pretty much have to assume that, that your data is being sold on the dark web. You know, just in the past week, uh, you know, T-Mobile, you know, the, the third largest Mobile phone company in the U.S. had, you know, 75 million, 50 to 75 million records breached. Uh, you know, we've seen you know, other big, big breaches that, that have gone on. So how do you solve that? And then with the digital transformation that we saw as part of the pandemic, you know, we really started to see, you know, all right, well, you know, the companies that have been offering uh, digital identity onboarding, you know, with the pictures of a document and, and a selfie and liveness comparison, um, you know, how, how can we start to leverage that? more. And, you know, there's been lots of reports. I believe Gartner put out a report last year that, you know, prior to COVID, uh, that, that traffic made up about 20%, 15 to 20% of onboarding traffic. And, you know, we're now expecting by the end of 2022 20, 20, to be 80%. You know, so in two and a half years, you know, you are virtually moving you know, nearly the entire global population to, to do, you know, digital onboarding with, with document checks to satisfy KYC requirements. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, the pandemic uh, definitely accelerated that. You know, we, we were on a path with it anyway. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're because of the, the acceleration of the pandemic, you know, I think we're going to start to now get into that fourth wave um, here in, you know, about 18 to, to 24 months. We'll start to enter it, and, and that's where, we're probably going to start to see the digital transformation and the actual combining of, of these systems to influence each other. You know, we've uh, been in the world a long time, and we've talked quite a bit about leveraging your transaction monitoring system to interact with your customer monitoring system, to interact with your customer onboarding system, and, and really get uh, a full view on the risk a customer you know is, is doing. And you know, I think we're finally getting to that space with you know customers accepting it from an onboarding, but also technical limitations we had in the past around, you know, data governance and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, it's a really exciting time uh, to, to be in this space. You know, it seems like every every few years there's there's a new kind of push and a new kind of bump in it. And, you know, I think we're going to start to see see that next wave, you know, come here in the next few years. Uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating perspective on the, the, the past waves and then the next wave ahead of us. I haven't really heard it characterized like that, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, uh, you know, I think definitely you're, you're right on, you're right on the money in terms of the, the next wave. I think, you know, it's, as you're saying, it's like already arriving in some ways, um, you know, and it's definitely going to accelerate over the next, the next 18 to 24 months. So, uh, so thanks for that, a broad view of the landscape. Let's drill down a little bit on challenges, this KYC element that a lot of institutions are still struggling with, 
um, is is one of the key challenges. And then looking ahead to integrating systems and building that full view of of the customer. What else is is on the plate of compliance programs? What are some of the the key challenges you're seeing them deal with? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's funny when we talk about challenges for compliance officers. You know, probably up until you know, just pre-pandemic, you you would almost all always exclusively talk about banks. <laughs> what's, what's the bank's compliance officer thinking about and whatnot? Um, but you know, with the the vast expansion of regulation, you know, with the you know fifth and fifth direct coming in in the EU and then, you know, the upcoming six and, you know, you know, regulations in the States, all of a sudden this umbrella is, you know, covering everyone from payments and fintechs and cryptos and, you know, a farmer down the road, you know, probably has some sort of, you know, money laundering compliance issues he has to deal with, he or she has to deal with. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, we'll all kind of, hopefully we'll kind of stratify this. You know, if I'm, if I'm still a legacy mature compliance program in a bank, you know, I think the biggest challenges they have really do revolve around this ultimate beneficial owner question and how, you know, not necessarily me as a retail customer, you know, I think most banks have a pretty good view on, you know, their individual customers. And, and you know, you still see that stuff in the news where, you know, they, they bank some peps and, 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 and do some do some shady things with them. But I think with them, the biggest challenge that they're really trying to uncover is um, their, their corporate banking uh, with ultimate beneficial ownership and, and, and banking corporates. And then the extension of that is um, – how far do they have to go in the policing, the supply chain of the, the organizations that they bank? So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're banking a large retail customer uh, that makes T-shirts, what is your human slavery uh, responsibility as a bank if they're out, outsourcing, uh, you know, development and creation of these products uh, that they sell? You know, what, where, where does it start? You know, what, what do you need to do? What are you on the hook for? What are you not? And, you know, it's a big question. Uh, you know, we you know, have seen regulators use banks as an, as a legal extension, uh, legal extension of governments. And I think, you know, you know, if I'm, if I'm a bank secrecy officer, money laundering reporting officer at a bank, it's top of mind, you know, how, how far do I have to go? And, and really trying to solve that. Um, you know, then if I look at a less mature, type company uh, in terms of compliance, you know, a payments company or a crypto company or fintechs or whatnot. Uh, I think really the biggest concern is, you know, actually the transactions that are flowing through the system. Uh, you know, you're dealing with much, usually much smaller volumes and, and types of transactions, uh, but criminals have gotten very good at, you know, shielding even in the really micro transactions. I, you know, even a decade ago was saying, you know, who would, who would launder money through a prepaid card? And you know, de facto thing, drug traffickers were doing that and everyone else. And now you're seeing the, the smaller transactions, be it through crypto or funding of crypto wallets and, and whatnot, and, and really following the money again. So I think they're probably a little bit more concerned and should be more concerned on that side, you know, so you don't end up secretly hosting and transmitting money to terrorist organizations around the world or are processing proceeds of drug trafficking or, or, you know, other things like that. So, you know, I think that's sort of the key thing there. You know, when we talk about those waves, um, you know, a lot of these new emerging firms, they're, they're sort of in that second wave around the transaction monitoring piece. They've kind of solved the puppet sanctions um, and, and think they largely have a good handle on, you know, who an individual is, but, you know, really solving, you know, how do I, how do I follow the money? How do I take a peek at it and, and do it in a quick and easy way? Uh, cause they're also, they're thinking about real time. They're not thinking about, 
you know, a traditional banking use case, which is, you know, running transactions three weeks after the fact. You know, a, a lot of these smaller companies, they, they want to know immediately. They want to know, you know, in the next day. Uh, and so how do you, how do you solve that real time problem? Um, so that's how it kind of stratifies stratify those, those two, <laughs> two kind of buckets. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a great point on the speed, you know, just the, the acceleration of speed and the, the comfort with, with which institutions have to get on, on that, that level of speed. Cause it is a, it's a customer expectation to be able to do things very quickly when it comes to financial transactions at this point. Um, and obviously that, that opens up a whole can of worms in related, in relation to financial crime risk. But yeah, yeah, a tremendous challenge, you know, around real time payments. So, um, thanks for that perspective on, on challenges on the, the kind of criminal actor side and the, the programmatic side. What about regulatory? change and challenge. There's been some very significant regulatory changes, well, legislative changes in the U.S., which are now being implemented as regulatory changes, but that, you know, far from the only region where this is taking place. Of everything that you're seeing out there, what what is really the, the key elements that compliance teams need to focus on? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, what, what we're kind of seeing and, and what we're hearing is, you know, the, the regulations that have come in around that ultimate beneficial uh, rule, um, and then combined with the travel rule in crypto, is right now there is a big push a- around how do fiat currency organizations, so banks, uh, fintechs, payment providers, you know anyone that, that's able to ingest money um, into the system, uh, how do you track money going into crypto wallets? And, you know, we, we kind of talked earlier, right, you know, about big banks and, you know, the, their challenges around, you know, their extension on monitoring uh, their corporate banking and, and sort of the supply chain. Uh, but, you know, we've seen a ton of regulator emphasis uh, really, really placed on this, this crypto question. Uh, you know, because the fact is, you know, Bitcoin and, and some other coins are actually pretty terrible way <laughs> to launder money. Uh, you know, we saw that with the ransomware attack uh, a couple months ago. You know, it's five million or eight million dollar ransom on on the on the pipeline on the U.S. East Coast, and the U.S. government was able to recover it in less than a month uh, because Bitcoin are public transactions, and you're able to to link uh, transactions to wallets and whatnot. So it's actually pretty easy. A way for or for uh, law enforcement to to recover funds rather than sort of the traditional wire transfer methods uh, of the past. So, but I, I think where they're putting a lot of concern because a lot of criminals still do use it is, you know, how how do we track moving you know fiat currency into the crypto world? Because there are coins that obviously are a lot harder. You know, Dogecoin. Uh, we won't comment on why billionaires really have a a, a love affair with Dogecoin, um, but. You know, they might be able to move money pretty easily, uh, and uh, no one can track it. So, you know, they largely haven't paid taxes. So, you know, you, you can you can make a use case there. But I think that's if I'm a bank, they are deathly afraid of funding a wallet that's secretly owned by North Korea or Syria uh, or you know someone in Iran. You know, if they're, if they're a U.S. if they're a U.S. bank, you know, they're they're really concerned about that. North Koreans have gotten very good at um, you know creating creating these wallets and, and moving funds. So, you know, they're they're super worried about that. And then payment providers as intermediaries, uh, you know, are are worried about it as well. So, you know, it's just a lot of a lot of just a lot of concern from from everyone involved. You know, and I think they're they're putting a lot of time, energy, and effort. You know, from a regulatory point of view, the regulators are saying 
how are you doing this? How are you monitoring it? How are you are you ensuring that you know you're not funding um, a, a criminal wallet or a criminal exchange? It's a huge challenge on the regulatory side because the regulatory landscape is not at all set on crypto, um, and it varies pretty greatly between jurisdiction, right? So you still have these these areas where there's pretty under or unregulated uh, VASPs of various types out there. So I do agree with you that the transparency of crypto makes it a pretty lousy way to to launder money when it comes to you know sanctions evasion, some of these other criminal use cases, funding for cybercrime, maybe. Uh, there's there's advantages, but when it comes to pure concealment of transactions, it's not not so great in that regard. You're better off with the, the classic suitcase full of cash. Um, let's let's take a step back and let you know we've been talking about a lot of criminal risks, the evolution of the risk landscape. We touched on the AML Act and you know one of the things the AML Act actually reiterates is the need for a risk-based approach. And actually, if I'm remembering this correctly, kind of enshrines or formalizes a risk-based approach within the legislation, which was always an expectation, but wasn't wasn't explicitly spelled out until now. So, so why this emphasis on the risk-based approach? Why is a risk-based approach so important for AML compliance? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's commonly a joke within the uh, bank secrecy officer money laundering community that the reason regulators say it's a risk-based approach is so, you know, they have something to find something wrong with you. You know, it's, a, it's almost <laughs> like an audit. You know, an auditor is always going to find, like, so it, you know, they say that the regulators push a risk-based approach so they can keep their jobs. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think it, it is the right approach because one size doesn't fit all. So banks, Company payment companies. Everyone has a different use case. They have a, a different customer base. They go after a different a, risk, a different risk profile. And so, what's that risk based approach? Is you know, despite you know people complaining about they're not given do you know a checkbox, do this, 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 and this. Um, it does give businesses flexibility to um, go after business that they want to, and you know decide what their risk appetite is and then, you know, make decisions on it. So I think it does actually help them be more flexible. It does help them grow business. It does help them uh, in the market to say, you know, bank A or company A down the street is not going after marijuana companies in Colorado. I think that's a really good growth area for me. So I'm going to, and, you know, I'm just, we'll treat it as a high risk where they don't even go after it. So, you know, it, it really, you know, when you talk about the specific use cases, you know, it helps companies really be flexible um, and, and, and really drive and manage their risk profile to, to what they see fit based on their commercial aspirations and, and their drive to, you know, be the best corporations it can be. Um, you know, on the regular side, you know, we did kind of joke that, you know, it keeps them in the job. But, you know, I, I think, you know, there is a, there's a kernel of truth in that. Like, it, it does, no one has ever come out of the regulatory review with no findings or new things to fix. And I think that's important. Everything can always be better. If you do have a prescriptive approach, then someone said, well, I did it. Why do any more? Why do anything more? I have a bare minimum. And so by, by not setting that bare minimum, by, by, you know, really pushing people to do better and do more, you know, I, I do think it does, does help to, for the community to, to continue to push and, and continue to try and be the best they can be um, and not just do the bare minimum out there in the market. And finally, the excuse that, that regulators do give is for not giving a prescriptive roadmap is that, you know, if there is a prescriptive policy that they put out, 
um, then the criminals know exactly how to get around it. You know, so if you say monitor every transaction above $4,822, you know, if it's going cross border, criminals are just going to put $4,820 to the system. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, they'll, they'll use that as a roadmap on, you know, how, how do I evade, uh, the, the frameworks? Where is the, you know, you've seen regulators around the world go the risk based approach for the specific thing because, you know, criminals look for the easiest point of entry. So if that's because the Seychelles has a prescriptive policy, they can get the money in there, then they just transfer it to wherever they want to go. So, you know, you have seen regulators globally, regulators, you know, even a couple of years ago, a couple of regulators around the world had prescriptive policies, um, and they've abandoned that for the risk-based approach just for that specific reason, because criminals will, will find it, they'll use it, and then that's how bad money gets into the system. Now, that, that, is a, that is an excellent perspective on it, and absolutely one that plays out in the real world all the time. Anytime you have a, a rules-based approach, it's going. the bad actors are going to figure out those rules and then game them. So mm-hmm. while it is frustrating to not have those bright lines sometimes about exactly what you're supposed to do, you know, it creates that that gray area that allows for innovation, really, on the on the compliance side too, to some extent. So, so I think I think it's a great point. Let's talk about you know within this the AML programs. One of the key elements, obviously, the key pillars of an AML program is training. Risk based approach is fundamental. Training is fundamental. But training, I think, has been a consistent challenge. You know, we at ACFCS, uh, this is a topic near and dear to our heart because we do. We put out a lot of training, um, and we we try we try our best to make it interesting. Uh, but what do you see as some of the weak points on the training side? What are some of the biggest mistakes companies make, specifically when it comes to AML training? I mean, I think the anyone that works with any company anywhere has to do training of some kind, right? So, you know, if it's anti-bribery and corruption training, or if it's you know all all these other things, uh, I think some of the mistakes. In these specific training areas, when, when you're talking about, you know, the general workforce, largely just making it more interactive and, and things have become a lot more interesting to, to do that. So, you know, I, I think, you know, when you're, when you're training your salespeople or you're training your frontline staff or you're training your engineers to look out for specific things, you know, I think, you know, the, the education community and, and the third party resources um, out there have done a great job. Um, and, and really have evolved that to, to make it a little bit more interesting and, and not just be the, the headache that, that you have to do an hour every six months and you don't look forward to it and whatnot. So, you know, I, I think that that part of training, you know, companies has gotten a lot stronger. When you talk sort of about people specifically in the AML area, when you're talking about analysts or you're talking about people that work in AML departments, you know, I, I think the, the biggest mistake, and again, I'm kind of kind of break this into mature and, and less mature programs, um, and they're actually sort of the dichotomy, you know, the flip, is that I, I think in, when we talked a little bit earlier, you know, we talked about risk-based approach and prescriptive. I think internally, what's kind of interesting is large, mature compliance programs are often incredibly prescriptive um, in terms of training and process with their staff. You know, it's, if you get an alert, do one, two, three, then do four, five, six, then do seven, eight, nine, right? And and if step nine isn't there, go to step 12. You know, someone has sat down and written out a 500-page manual, and it gives that very little latitude uh, around exceptional cases, uh, cases, edge cases, or, you know, specific things that risk-based approach is supposed to allow you to do, a little bit of flexibility and whatnot. So often you, big banks, 
and big companies that have these mature programs are you know, very prescriptive and you know give a very demotivating type of job to someone. You know, it's just follow this rule and do this. There's no thinking. It's just enter in a box and just kind of go to carry road kind of activity. And I think on the flip side with less mature companies, they sort of take the risk-based approach a little bit too far um, and they get too much latitude to, to individuals, uh, which opens up, you know, the, there's uh, too much risk to the company because they've not trained uh, these analysts or these individuals well enough to say, these are our business goals. These are the risks we're trying to take that we're willing to accept and what we're not, you know, they, they leave it kind of open. And then that leaves a lot of questions for people that, that you know, need a little bit more guidance. So I think there's a sweet spot on having, having processes and being prescriptive, but then giving people the latitude and the trust to, to do that. And, and that's where I think, you know, I think some of the programs you will run are, are very pragmatic um, to, to help um, organizations really start to thread that needle on, you know, that balance uh, on the risks that, that they want to take and, and how do you organize this and how, how do you empower your staff to, to do and make better decisions for the company. But it's going to be an evolution. And, and like you said, it, you know, it, it really sort of depends on the maturity of your program, the amount of time, energy, and resources that you dedicate to it. Um, and, and just working with ECFCS, sorry, uh, and, you know, with some external Agencies that really can help you get the best training program possible that does give, uh, it will give you a lot more benefit down the road, uh, to, to help make things, you know, best for everybody. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, uh, appreciate the plug. Your, your check is in the mail, Micah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I promise, I, I promise uh, no one paid me for that. I promise. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a, it's not a paid endorsement at ACFCS, but no, I, Definitely appreciate it. And I, I really like what you said about finding that balance to empower your people, because that is the key, right? You, you obviously have policies and procedures about what your employees can and can't do. But at the same time, you need you need a staff that feels empowered and feels responsible um, and capable of detecting and preventing financial crime, because it is something that requires a degree of nimbleness and adaptability, because that's absolutely what's taking place on the criminal side. Um, so, you know, in light of that, since we're talking about policies and procedures, we talked about training, we talked about the risk-based approach. Another key element, obviously, of the AML program is your internal policies and your internal systems. Uh, so what do you see as critical for a successful program around around those points, the systems and policies? Yeah, so I think, you know, really, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier just around, you know, where are various companies and organizations at a big bank that's been doing AML programs for 40 years uh, to a crypto exchange that just incorporated last year, right? You know, everyone has different different needs. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we talk, when we're talking about startups and we're talking about fintechs or we're talking about payments and, and those types of organizations, uh, you know, I, I think really the key for them um, is really focusing on, you know, the, that, that follow the money type policy because, you know, we, we referenced it earlier um, and we said that, um, you know, companies are, or, or fraudsters really look for the easiest point of entry into the system to, to get money in. So we talked about the risk-based approach with regulators and saying, you know, if, if a small country around the world had a really loose or had a prescriptive AML policy for their banks, they could uh, push that. Uh, that's where they would enter. So right now, the easiest way to get money into the system and, and transact it is, is in startups. Um, and because there, there's a, you know, 
as a startup, you're like, oh, I'm seeing a lot of money flow through the system, which is great because I'm trying to raise a Series A or a Series B, and I need to show revenue increase. And you know, so so they use that that lever of revenue growth to to really you know um, you know make make some poor decisions on these corporations to take this money. Um, so you know, I, I think it is really important. That, that these companies, you know, invest and, in, you know, doing some analytics and doing a lot of evaluation on, on the money flows, what it's looking like, and, you know, really, you know, doing a better job at source of funds and, and figuring out where that money's coming from and not being lulled into, you know, just because someone has a big paycheck, it, it's legitimate. You know, you, you need to, uh, they need to really look into that uh, a lot, a lot closer. Um, if I'm talking at, you know, enterprise uh, banks or even Fortune 500 companies, I think, you know, we, we talked about that fourth wave earlier. You know, I think they're starting to look at that now. It's, you know, how do we, they have all the systems in place, right? And we've talked ad nauseum for years about data lakes and siloed systems and them not talking to each other, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, they are, we are at the point technically uh, where we can start joining these systems together and really, you know, having these influences and the analytics coming through between customer behavior and transaction behavior um, to, to really start to influence and, and eliminate a lot of alerts that come out of these systems uh, because they're, they're, the systems currently don't talk to each other. Uh, because customer behavior may be perfectly normal, um, even though the transaction side looks odd. But if it's in line with that customer behavior, you, you don't need to investigate it because that's what you expect it to do. Um, so, you know, it, it's really, I think, you know, at the enterprise level, we're starting to see that. But, yeah, the, the smaller companies, you know, I, I think it is really important that they do a lot more work on on the analytics side. They, you know, lots of companies we speak to that are out in the market, they're almost solely focused on sanctions of PEP because, obviously, that's super important. But, you know, just just because someone's not a pet today doesn't mean they're not a pet tomorrow and, you know, they're going to use that to, to, to lever through, or they may just be a fraudster and, and just using, you know, their, your, your need for new customers and your need to generate revenue uh, to, to put bad money in your system and then make you a victim of, of their scheme. Yeah. And I mean, I think this point that you're mentioning about we're finally at a point where things are integrated, right? You know, we've moved beyond talking about just getting all your data in one place is a really exciting point because that's been so much of the focus in, in recent years. But it also begs a question of like, okay, you know, once you get all that worked out, you know, we've been struggling with just doing that piece for such a long time. What do you do with it now that you have, you know, better capabilities, right? You now still have to, you, you really have to show that, now that you've you've been doing all this work on the data side and the systems integration side, you have to to show that you're achieving better results, right? Um, and you still need you know, a lot of a lot of these other elements that we've been talking about in it in a capable AML program. The good the training, the empowerment of people, the focus on you know your risks to to make that happen. It's not just about this one piece of it. So yeah, so sure. interesting time, interesting time to see where. We, where are we going next? We touched on this 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 next point before, but I want to revisit the point you made about you know auditors. I know we kind of talked about it in a humorous way of yeah, they're always going to find something wrong, but uh, I think that highlights the next piece of you know independent testing is another key element of another pillar of the AML uh, compliance program. Why uh, independent testing? Why is th- why is this element also so important to this whole construct? Yeah, and, you know, it's really, when, when you talk about the, the A&O environment, you know, you, you have the companies that need it, you've got 
the technology providers that, that give you solutions, and then you've got the regulators, and then you have the auditors. So you sort of have these four kind of going around, but, you know, sort of the technology providers and, and the companies that need it, there's, there's you know, sort of a wall between auditors and regulators, because as we talked about before, the auditors and regulators don't tell you anything um, because of the risk-based approach and, and because of, you know, the way that they, the way that they review systems. Uh, you know, one area of this ecosystem that's really, you know, fairly been neglected and, and but you're starting to see a little bit more investment in it is this independent checking. And, you know, there, there were some companies a few years ago that started to really test sanctions and PEP um, services. You know, are you, you know, it's really funny. Yeah, it's companies are like, oh, I have a 0.1%, you know, alert rate on my sanctions and PEP. My system is running really well. And a regulator and auditor will come in and say, no, you should be at 2%. And the company's like, well, they're not actually sanctions or prep wider. And they'll just say, that's the, that's the industry standard. You have to have 1% or 2%. You're, you're too efficient. Uh, this could be frustrating for an institution. So uh, the independent testers uh, really can you know, bridge that divide and, and give a solid piece of factual evidence to say, you know, institution A that is similar to yours has rates that are this level. Institution B, you should be in this, you know, you, you don't want to be, you know, too far outside of the norm on either side because that's where the regulators or the auditors will pick up. And that's what they can do. And, you know, I think the problem has always been, um, especially because we talked about mature banks, you know, banks are notoriously terrible about sharing any information about their annual program to a competitor. Um, they're, they're horrendous about it. And uh, we're starting to see that, that, you just start to, to break up. And so the independent testers really can do that to say, this is a comparable bank, this is a comparable institution that are doing roughly the same things, um, and you should be, you know, roughly about in there. You know, they're viewed as a, as a best-in-class type, type of program. This is where you should be. And it gives it gives that divide. Uh, you know, we talked about how do you do a risk-based approach. It gives you a lot of flexibility. But that independent testing can give you that just that little bit of insider comfort that what you're doing is industry standard, is not outside the norm, um, and, and it really pays off in dividends, especially if you do get challenged on on some holes in your program that you can say, I've had an independent tester look at this, and it says I'm on par with, with this organization, so tell me what's wrong. So it gives you a little bit more um, fact-based evidence, you know, if, if there is a finding against you by an auditor or regulator. I think the auditors out there are uh, are, uh, are are happy to happy to hear that they're heartened by that response. So uh, this has been a, this has been a great conversation, uh, and and thank you for uh, taking the time to walk through, you know, kind of the full scope of the AML program. Revisit some elements that you know maybe for some people are are back to basics, but looking at them in a in a different light, in light of you know these waves of change that you mentioned. Um, Let's let's finish it off with one one final look at an issue that um, really I think it goes into this 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 next wave that hopefully we're approaching this wave of digital transformation and that is machine learning um, artificial intelligence machine learning has been a big conversation for years I think there was maybe you know, kind of a first wave uh, that in some cases didn't necessarily live up to the hype and now. Uh, we're in we're in what is more uh, hopefully a, a new era of machine learning. So, what are you seeing in terms of comfort level from from 
AML BSA officers uh, or money laundering reporting officers in in implementing machine learning frameworks for things like transaction monitoring um, or KYC customer due diligence. Um, you know, how, wh where are institutions at? How comfortable are they at this point? Yeah, I, mean, I think you know, to your point, I, I think I think you're right. Like we we sort of had a false start a few years ago, um, and, and I think mostly it comes down to the whole issue around explainability, which is a nice term to say I don't understand what machine learning is. Uh, so regulators would always say, "How do you explain it? What does it do? How do you you know?" So you because you can't explain your role, you can't use it. Um, and yes, there, there, there absolutely has to be an element of explainability uh, with, with machine learning and, and whatnot. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, we, we finally have gotten to the point that, you know, one regulator is number one, have seen because of, you know, the, the great leaps of, of improvements that they've seen in the fraud space with machine learning uh, frameworks, you know, Money laundering regulators have, have seen, you know, how well that that's really helped the community. So, you know, they they really invest a lot of time, energy, and effort to get educated to to find out what these rules do and, and how do they work. So, you know, I think there's there's that element, and you know, they are now pushing organizations to include it. Um, they're not scared of it. Regulators are not scared of machine learning anymore. Um, obviously, you still have the explainability, but they also accept that, you know, to a certain extent. You know, you know, a rule isn't necessarily 100, going to be 100% explainable. Um, and they're starting to get more comfortable around why something was alerted, but you may not be able to explain it down to the nth degree where with a rule, you used to be able to. You know, you're looking for transactions that were cross-border um, five times in, in a, in a two-week time period um, that aggregated above $25,000. Yeah, it's really simple. It's really easy. It's either yes or no. There's not a lot of gray in that. Um, where obviously machine learning frameworks don't don't work that way. Um, you know, there's they they have a lot more flexibility. But on the flip side, they actually stop bad behavior. They stop bad transactions, and so um, and have a lot better success rate. So, you know, I, I think we we are starting to see this. Um, you know, there, there's a lot more comfort and really not that push on explainability and going on, you know, everyone's a lot more educated. And, you know, like we said with the systems, you know, just that maturity of the systems and the interoperability of them uh, really enhances it too. So, you know, like you said, we're starting to, I think that you're right, that, that in the machine learning portion, the, which is separate from the waves, but, um, you know, I think we are starting to get into a lot of the benefits of the fraud businesses, the fraud side of the business, you know, we're seeing four or five years ago. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, you know, I think I've said this a few times already, but I think it's a really exciting time um, to be in financial crime compliance. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the stars, it feels like the stars on the compliance side uh, are kind of aligning finally. And uh, some of these some of these challenges are, are, you know, finally sorting themselves out. Obviously, new ones are probably just ahead, but uh, there's a lot of very powerful tools and uh, capabilities kind of coming online right now to detect and prevent financial crime in a way that there's never been in the past. So uh, it's a good time to be on the uh, the compliance side and and the tech side. So we'll end it there on a on a on a 
optimistic note, and uh, hopefully I'm proven right. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> but again, we've been talking with Micah Willebrand, who is the VP of product uh, with Jumio on the AML side. Uh, and it's been a fantastic conversation really looking at all aspects of what makes an AML program effective in this current era, um, in this current wave of financial crime detection and prevention. So Micah, thank you so much for being here. I uh, really appreciate the time and perspective and uh, hopefully we can have you back on the program sometime. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our listeners out there. Please uh, catch the Financial Crime Cast on all of your favorite podcast platforms. We're on Spotify, Apple, and others. And join us for the next episode. With that, we'll wrap up for today. Goodbye for now, everyone. <laughs>